Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hi, Darren. It's Friday, the 18th of November today, and we did promise we'd be back sooner rather than later. Today, we're going to start with the G20 meeting in Indonesia, focusing, though, mostly on two big bilateral meetings conducted by President Xi Jinping, one with Australia's Prime Minister Albanese and one with President Biden. Next, we'll turn to our favourite topic on this podcast, speeches by Australian leaders, diving deep into Foreign Minister Penny Wong's Whitlam oration and also a speech from the Deputy Prime Minister and Defence Minister Richard Miles. And we'll finish with the US midterms. But we'll start with all of the G20 leaders, except for Vladimir Putin, gathering in Bali this past week. The headlines didn't really come from the leaders' summit itself, though, but the side meetings. This was China's President Xi Jinping's return to the world stage after three years of mostly self-imposed pandemic isolation, and there was plenty to talk about. Alan, I think we have to start with Prime Minister Albanese's meeting with President Xi. The meeting ran for just over 30 minutes, and the Prime Minister's press release says that Albanese raised bilateral trade issues, we know what that's about, consular issues, we know what that's about, and human rights. While Chinese state media, Xinhua, said that Xi discussed the huge potential for economic and trade cooperation and the hope that Australia will provide a sound environment for Chinese investment. In a doorstop interview, Albanese described the discussion as warm, also using the term warm to describe how she spoke about his visits to Australia, including to Tasmania. According to the Prime Minister, AUKUS and the Quad were not raised. And it's also worth mentioning that a few days prior to this meeting, Albanese met with the outgoing Chinese Prime Minister, Li Keqiang, in Phnom Penh. Alan, you've said previously that the situation of two G20 members simply not talking to each other was untenable. So it's positive, obviously, to move past that. Did this first contact unfold as you expected and hoped? And do you have any theories as to what caused Beijing to decide it was time now to talk, given it's been almost three and a half years since the last time the two countries' leaders spoke and even longer since a proper meeting? Look, look, it probably unfolded better than I expected. Uh, You quoted the PM using the term warm and the images from the meeting itself all suggested that the Chinese in particular were um, sort of calm and reassuring and wanted it to be a success. As to why nearly everyone in the commentariat has found in the conclusion of the meeting exactly the lesson that they've been drawing all along. So either... Uh, You know, China only agreed to the meeting because of Australia's toughness and unwavering resolve, or the meeting only came about because the new government was less confrontational and more diplomatic in its approach. My view all along and repeated frequently on this podcast is that Australia could have had implemented all our policy positions, the Huawei ban, the legislation on foreign interference, 
even the idea that we should draw lessons from the COVID outbreak, just as New Zealand did, without the collateral damage if the last government had engaged in less chest-beating triumphalism and contradictory messaging. The Albanese government, on the other hand, has shown discipline, unity and resolve, and the messaging of respect and listening has applied to the great powers as well as our small Pacific neighbours. It just seems implausible to me to think that this would have happened if Scott Morrison had been returned at the last election. So uh, the unwavering resolve on Australia's part had to come with a decision by the Australian people to change the government, I think. The opposition seems on board with the shift and Peter Dutton has announced that he met the Chinese ambassador himself. Yeah, that's an interesting counterfactual sort of, it triggers my social science instincts here. Like if we just changed the one variable, the election result, would we have had the same outcome? Now, of course, would the rhetoric and the the messaging have been same as she goes from before the election? Or might a newly re-elected Morrison government have adopted something more like what the current government is doing? I guess we'll never know. You know, I'm fascinated though by this change of calculus. And in a must-read edition of his Substack newsletter from Beijing to Canberra, my ANU colleague Ben Herskovich pointed out just yesterday that the Chinese government does appear to have walked back from previous demands for changed behaviour from Australia as a precondition for resuming talks. And these weren't demands from before the election, they were demands made since Labor took office. Consistent with your perspective though, Alan, I do think a major part of it has to have been specific animus towards the diplomatic style of the previous government. And conversely, a recognition of the calm and respectful tone the new government has taken. It's possible maybe that some of this animus has been transferred to the Canadians. There was this really quite remarkable video footage of Xi reprimanding Canada's Prime Minister Trudeau for leaking details of their private conversation. And a meeting with the UK Prime Minister Sunak was also cancelled, possibly because of London's increasingly hostile posture. Did you read the Xi-Trudeau exchange that way? I thought that as shirt frontings go, it was actually pretty mild and polite. She was obviously pissed off by Trudeau's press briefing about their meeting, and he said so. But when I looked at it on YouTube, which you suggested I do, I, I wasn't surprised. She goes up to Trudeau, albeit in a place where he knew the media could observe them, And he says, everything was leaked to the paper. That's not appropriate. If there is sincerity, we can communicate well with mutual respect. Otherwise, the outcome will not be easy to tell. Then Trudeau makes reasonable points about Canada's free and open society and his commitment to sharing information with the Canadian people. She says, let's create the conditions first. He smiles, they both shake hands, and they walk away. Not not one for the history books, really. Well, China Twitter certainly disagreed that we were all a flutter. Um, and maybe that's because we know so little about she, the man, the individual. So this piece of footage was a rare insight. I was still struck by his body language. You know, to me, it was more of disdain um, rather than simple disappointment. And apparently, people carefully listening into the audio clip could hear him say the phrase or the words, very naive, muttering to himself to a staffer as he was walking off. Um, I also found it notable that Trudeau walked off 
through a doorway by himself. You know, I mean, I've not been to many of these meetings, but when you see leaders, they're normally surrounded by a phalanx of staff who, if nothing else, tell them where to go so they're not just standing around sort of looking awkward. I mean, was that unusual to you? Should Trudeau have had a staff with him? Yeah, be careful of overinterpretation. I think okay. he may well have had a word to his minders after the event. Well, anyway, let's get back to the Australia meeting. So I am not persuaded that the new government's changed tone, given that tone has been accompanied by the repeated emphasis that our interests have not changed. I don't find that satisfying enough as the single explanation. So I do wonder, therefore, whether Beijing has calculated that it was actually in China's interests. There were benefits to resuming talks. I think that's absolutely true. I don't think those two things are contradictory. Mm. So what could those benefits be? One possibility is the self-harm caused by economic coercion, but the amount of damage to the Chinese economy isn't that significant. And of course, no barriers have been removed yet. Another possibility, I think, stems from Xi Jinping's grim assessment in his recent work report that was delivered during the, the party congress of the challenging international environment China now faces. If things are increasingly difficult, both abroad but also at home, perhaps Beijing is trimming its sails and trying to minimise sources of overt hostility. And there could be even more possibilities, and Ben speculates on these in newsletter editions, so I guess we'll never know. But the obvious question now for Australia is what's next, but we might pin that discussion for when we analyse Foreign Minister Wong's speech. So let's instead turn to the long-awaited in-person meeting between Xi and US President Biden, which went reportedly for over three hours. The headlines were Biden's promise that there would be no new Cold War with China and that he did not believe China would invade Taiwan imminently, while Xi stressed Taiwan as the first red line that must not be crossed. Given our discussion last episode, Alan, of the deterioration in the relationship signified or typified by the US's technology export controls, if anything, the tone of this meeting was at odds with that and a bit warmer compared to that darkening trajectory. What was your read? Yeah, I thought that's that's right. It was a solid meeting and it, it again showed how preferable personal encounters are to the virtual ones. If the two of them had turned up to this G20 meeting and not talked, the message sent to the rest of the world would have been, I think, much more threatening than either of them wished. So the talks were, I think, always going to happen. But in terms of how it unfolded, as I say, better than I expected, and you could almost hear a hiss as some of the pressure in the international system was released. Of course, differences remain, et cetera, et cetera. We talked in the last episode about the new forms of containment, but this meeting suggested to me at least that we're not yet in a new form of Cold War. Yeah, while we could go round and round in circles about cause and effect and chickens and eggs, you know, recently it has been Washington initiating the most directly confrontational or provocative moves. Think of Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan and these technology export controls. And of course, this is not to excuse Beijing's retaliation against the former. But I think it is still good to see that the Biden administration wants to limit the downward spiral. There is talk of guardrails, there's talk of putting a floor underneath the relationship, and all that is proper. If you're going to compete explicitly, then doing so according to some form of agreed rules or norms or framework is better than not having those. 
And I think the conditions for a positive meeting were there, given both leaders had recently enjoyed measures of political success at home, you know, with the party congress in China and, and the US midterm result for Biden. And the two leaders, I think, found something that they could agree upon, which is that nuclear war is a very bad idea. And that's critically important, but it's not that much given the breadth of issues the two countries have. And so I think the lack of outcomes from the meeting just reminds us, as you said, Alan, that there are deep structural differences and that we may need a greater degree of separation, I think, whether you call it decoupling or something else, as an essential element to making both sides feel more secure over the medium to long term. But in the meantime, talking is better than not talking. And I want to recommend um, an excellent piece in Foreign Policy I just read yesterday by Scott Kennedy from CSIS. And this gets to your point, Alan, about the benefit of in-person meetings. You know, Kennedy points out that China, more so than most other countries, almost every other country really, has been focused inward during the pandemic. And the consequences of that physical isolation and limited direct contact with the outside world are really not good. So keeping in-person interactions going is going to be an important part of not just diplomacy between leaders and officials, but keeping basic human links, people-to-people links between you know the populations of China and, and, and the rest of the world to prevent estrangement. So I hope that when the Chinese system and the Chinese people see Xi interacting with his peers without masks mostly at this meeting, it begins to chip away at this mindset of isolationism that we've seen over the past few years. One last point on the G20, Alan. You know, the theme of the summit um, was recover stronger, recover together. But it was overshadowed, of course, by geopolitics, mostly Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And that, I think, was to the frustration of the Indonesian hosts. This issue of Russia loomed large, but had been a dividing issue in earlier ministerial meetings this year in preparation for the summit. And that was hampering the kinds of cooperation on economic issues that the forum was designed to address. I found it notable in the leader's declaration, which is 52 paragraphs long, um, that there was criticism of Russia in paragraphs three and four, right at the top for its invasion of Ukraine and an explicit focus on peace and security. But it wasn't the G20, it was the G7 who convened a meeting quite hastily over news that there had been rocket strikes on the Polish border, um, which turned out to not be from a Russian source, probably from an errant Ukrainian defensive missile. But it was that G7 grouping rather than the G20 that really sort of grabbed the headlines. So Alan, should we view this meeting as proving the impotence of an economic grouping like the G20 when geopolitics is dominating international affairs? Or might we hope for an expanded role for the G20 into the non-economic domain? Well, I don't think uh, the impotence of the uh, group at all is the way of thinking about it. G20 was never designed to solve all problems, but when it identifies that problems are solvable, it ensures that all the people who should be in the room are there. So it doesn't really matter, I think, what its formal mandate is. And we saw this, as you just noted, when the G7 NATO members had their own meeting about the situation in Poland. And from Australia's point of view, being in the room isn't something we should take for granted. So one of our jobs in the G20, it's always seemed to me, is to make it operate as effectively 
as possible. And I think you could see that in the way that the Prime Minister worked with President Widodo during the, uh, the session. And just because the Australian media hasn't been focused on some of the other dimensions of the G20 communique isn't to say that this is unimportant or being ignored in other parts of the world. Yeah, and that makes me think about our discussion about the UN General Assembly. Um, again, not something mm-hmm. that we focus on as much in Australia, but it's taken very seriously uh, around the world. Yeah. All right, let's move on then to speeches, the bread and butter of the Australia in the World podcast. We've got two from just the past week to dig into. The first is Foreign Minister Penny Wong's Whitlam oration delivered on the 13th. And the following day, Deputy Prime Minister Miles gave an address to the Sydney Institute annual dinner. So we'll start with the Whitlam oration, which this year marked the 50th anniversary to the day of Gott Whitlam's launch of the It's Time election campaign which swept the Labor Party to government for the first time in 23 years. Wong's speech covered issues of Australia's identity, including our First Nations heritage, our engagement with the region, in particular to focus on Papua New Guinea and Japan, and it contained a substantial section on China. It also, I might add, cited the words of Alan Gingell not once but twice on the topics of PNG's independence and Whitlam's foreign policy philosophy. So well done to you, Alan. But look, Alan, I'll throw to you to ask for your reactions, but can I offer this frame? We've debated previously whether a senior member of the government should give a speech on China, which you've been arguing in favour of. The Whitlam oration was not that. So I want to know what you saw as the purpose of this speech and whether at this point in the government's term and given the current strategic environment, whether this speech advanced our understanding of the government's thinking. I saw the speech more as a reinforcement of existing policy approaches than as breaking new ground. Look, more than the coalition, for a number of reasons, including the time they've both been around, the Australian Labor Party places great weight on its own history. So a speech marking, as you just noted, the 50th anniversary of Gough Whitlam's triumphant election campaign leading Labor to victory after all those years in the wilderness of opposition was always going to be a big event. Penny Wong in the speech actually says this is the most hallowed anniversary for all of us in the Labor movement. So that's, you know, that's a big focus of the speech. It's designed to place the Albanese government's foreign policies in a long Labor tradition. Uh, Much of it was devoted to the way Labor leaders like Curtin, Evatt and then Whitlam saw the world through the prisms of the alliance with the United States, the rules-based order and our engagement with Asia. I've heard that somewhere before, Darren. I can't. Uh, I can't think. Alan, look, I might have read that particular framing in a book somewhere, but to be honest, I would need reminding. Yeah, no, no, we'll get back to that. Look, particularly interesting for me though was the reminder of the similarities between Whitlam's approach to the deep interrelationship between Australia's own identity and our role in the world and Penny Wong's. So she begins with the great words from Whitlam's opening speech in 1972, and I'm going to quote them because they are really so powerful. Whitlam said then, and this is 50 years ago, more than any foreign aid program, more than any international obligation which we meet or forfeit, more than any part we may play 
In any treaty or agreement or alliance, Australia's treatment of its First Nations people will be the thing upon which the rest of the world will judge Australia and Australians, not just now, but in the greater perspective of history. Whitlam didn't actually use the word First Nations people, he said Aboriginal. Now, this links, of course, directly to the Albanese government's commitment to implement the Uluru Statement from the heart and the voice to Parliament. So Wong's view, which she repeats in this speech, but we've noted on the podcast before, that foreign policy starts with who we are, it's how we project ourselves to the world, And what we project to the world about who we are is an element of our national power. Very much echoes a Whitlam's approach too. And here she is, a Malaysian-born Australian Minister for Foreign Affairs, the living embodiment of all Whitlam hoped to achieve with the abolition of the White Australia policy and his fight against racism in all its forms. Then she ends by quoting again from Whitlam's speech 50 years ago. And I'm going to, again, I don't like sort of quoting large slabs, but this is so interesting and relevant. This is what he said 50 years ago. The great powers are rethinking and remoulding their relationships and their obligations. Australia cannot stand still at such a time. We cannot afford to limp along. If we made such a mistake, we would make Australia a backwater in our region and a back number in history. The Australian Labor Party, vindicated as we have been on all the great issues of the past, stands ready to take Australia forward to her rightful, proud, secure and independent place in the future of our region. So again, Wong is drawing parallels between the world as Whitlam found it and the contemporary environment. Thanks, Alma. That's really interesting. I'll come back to those parallels in a moment. But I first wanted to sort of point out, of course, every speech by every politician is going to be political. And I found the political dimension of this speech quite curious because Wong focused on her counterpart, Shadow Foreign Minister Simon Birmingham, who we've praised previously on the pod and Wong called one of the more decent people in parliament. She called on him essentially to repudiate the politicisation of foreign policy that we saw from key members of the previous government, including the now opposition leader Peter Dutton that we've talked about and criticised ourselves at the time, and that, in Wong's words, put party over country. She also said she would be inviting Birmingham and the Shadow Development Minister on her next trip to the Pacific, quote, to help elevate Pacific engagement as something that transcends the political divide. Reading that, Alan, I was reminded of the debate regarding whether the enduring bipartisan consensus in Australian foreign policy is a good thing or whether we need more contestability. Presumably, Birmingham will not be criticising the government while he's travelling with the minister. So generally, what did you make of these political dimensions to the speech? Well, that section was clearly a form of repayment to the opposition for the hammering Dutton and Morrison uh, had given Labor over China in the pre-election period. But I have to say that if you want to return to bipartisanship on some dimensions of foreign policy, and you know, my own position is that bipartisanship can be overvalued, I think that if we want a good foreign policy, we've got to have a democratic debate about its elements. But on some issues, obviously important, and Simon Birmingham, as you say, another South Australian for whom Wong 
obviously has considerable respect is the person to help bring it about. Now, on the you, you mentioned the offer to take him on the next trip to the Pacific. I see that in a sort of slightly different light. It replicates something that Julie Bishop did for uh, Penny Wong, taking her to the Pacific, and it really reflects the just practical reality that if we want our opposition shadow ministers to be well informed about the Pacific, if you want to go to Tuvalu or Kiribati or some of the remoter parts, going there, you know, with official government transport is really the only way of getting there. Fair enough. Well, let me come back to her speech and where you saw parallels, the nesting um, of the current government's approach within that long tradition. I guess I saw a more forward-looking agenda. She's obviously raised our identity and the modern identity multiple times, as, as we've discussed. But she went into more detail here about some of the history. You know, she raised the history of race-based immigration policies, our refusal to oppose arms sales to apartheid South Africa, and said, quote, along with the treatment of First Nations people, the combination of such policies, and this is quoting Gough Whitlam, leans heavily indeed on the world's goodwill and on Australia's credibility. So I think it's one thing to, to project a modern image of who we are now, but I think it's another thing then to go into some of the tarnished history we have, right, and some of our unfortunate historical legacies. And I think that's really important to do since racism and the experience of First Nations people continue to be issues today. And as Whitlam said, and as Wong is echoing, continue to undermine our credibility with the region. So while she's couching it in terms of Whitlam's historical achievements and his vision, she is talking about the present. And while it's probably not going to turn any zeros into ones in terms of concrete outcomes... I think resetting our image is essential to the foundations of our diplomatic success. And that is both about saying who we are now, but it's also about acknowledging where we've come from. And it's not all negative, right? I mean, there are some historical dimensions to be celebrated, like Whitlam's overseeing of Papua New Guinea's independence. And this highlights a tradition within Australia's diplomatic history of respect for and promotion of the sovereign rights of our closest neighbours. And so she says... We want to be partners, not patriarchs. Rather than lurching from absent to overbearing, Albanese Labor seeks to be better, more involved and more helpful members of the Pacific family. So I see both a political critique here of her predecessors, but also a positive message for the department, for the opposition and for the Australian community. And I think there's the beginnings there, a foundation of a clear and positive contrast with China, who do like to promote an image of being responsive to the region's needs, but also cannot help themselves from time to time in being overbearing on politically sensitive issues. Well, let's turn to China because I want to discuss the China portion of the speech, but then also what Australia should do now post the G20 bilateral meeting. Let's start with the speech, though. There are two key quotes I want to draw out. First, she says, the China of today is not the same as the China of the 1970s or even the 2000s. Some may prefer to pretend otherwise, but President Xi himself has made that clear, end quote. I see this as a message for Australia, um, especially for those whom the economic relationship is a central focus, given its legitimate contribution to the national interest. The new equilibrium that Wong talks about means 
not just a new equilibrium in the security domain, but a fundamentally changed economic relationship as well, I think. I noted that the Business Council of Australia CEO, Jennifer Westacott, described the Albanese meeting as a tremendous reset with China, which would create opportunities to build business-to-business relationships. And while I think those opportunities could potentially emerge, I think the more profound reset needs to be of the business community's expectations for what is possible, wherein attitude will need to be one of prudence and caution rather than exuberance. The second quote. Why, why do you say? Why do Why do you say fundamentally changed? Why, why fundamentally changed? Well, fundamentally, we, we can debate what that means. But what I mean by that is there is an unmitigated benefit given the complementarities of the economy, and so many of the eggs were going in the China basket, and so there was just enthusiasm and a, a one direction towards China, and the political environment we're in now both at closure within the Chinese system and the ever-present risk that structural tensions will derail the economic relationship mean more prudence, more guarded optimism. And I think that translates not just into how we build economic relationships, but how we talk about China publicly as well. But then the second quote, which I think was the most interesting uh, aspect of the entire speech for me, was Wong said, but we will not be trying to make media headlines out of the China relationship. And I see that one quote as the guiding principle of Australia's approach to China right now. Um, And that really does bring us into line with the region. And to me, Alan, it's consistent with my argument, contrary yours, that the government should not consider an even more comprehensive speech on China. I think we know everything we need to know about the government's approach from this speech and those preceding it. Well, not everything, I would say. (laughs) I I see your point, Darren, but I still disagree. But we can go into the whys another time. Fair enough, Alan. But this then, I guess, raises the question of where to from here. And I would summarize the mantra as make China boring. Take as much excitement out of the relationship as possible. Sometimes that won't be possible. And Australia's interests will demand actions and or statements that will be newsworthy. But the government appears like it will be making a deliberate cost-benefit calculation each time rather than reacting on political instinct. Now, when it comes to the present moment, there's been a discussion of off-ramps for China's informal sanctions. These have been raised by the trade minister. When asked about off-ramps, Wong said this was a matter for China. So I'm curious where you see us going from here, Alan. What's going to come next? What should come next for the bilateral relationship? Is some kind of symbolic gesture required? Do we need off-ramps? Or should as much boredom as possible be the order of the day? I like your idea of boredom, Darren. I also like the idea that we're talking again. And in addition to the meetings you've already noted, I see Chris Bowen met his Chinese counterpart at at the COP meeting on climate change. Uh, What should be next for the bilateral relationship? Well, I think it's what the government says. We work with China where we can. We disagree where we must. We do both things calmly, clearly, and another favourite word of the government, respectfully. You don't need to construct off-ramps. I mean, I think we will probably see, either for WTO reasons or in advance, some resolution of those trade issues. We just really need to avoid tripping ourselves up as we proceed along the path. Yeah, I think a good comparison is the Japan-China relationship across the 2010s. Some listeners might remember in 2012, there was a major dispute and very, very strong tensions between Tokyo and Beijing uh, that arose out of the Japanese government's decision to nationalise contested islands in the East China Sea. 
There were major economic disruptions. There was really intense vitriol, um, especially in protests across China, really far worse than anything Australia or Australian interests have experienced. And it took years for the relationship to get back on track. Xi Jinping took office in 2013, but would not visit Japan until 2019 for the G20. And across those six years, actually not that much changed structurally in the relationship. Neither country had dropped its territorial claims. And if anything, Japan's defense posture continued to shift more towards responding to a growing threat they see as being posed by China. So what actually changed probably was in Beijing's calculus that at the time, towards the end of the decade, with President Trump in office, US-China relations were becoming more confrontational. And having equally confrontational relationships with both Washington and Tokyo was just too much of a burden. Plus, I think time dulled some of those 2012 grievances. So for Australia's point of view, you know, Japan waited, it diversified its economy where it could, and it got on with things carefully, prudently, respectfully, but it waited until interests aligned again. Some of those economic measures just melted away over time. And I think Canberra might need to be willing to be equally patient. One last point I wanted to raise, Alan, on China. The government has clearly stated that it is trying to lower the temperature in the bilateral relationship. And so far, that's working. And as I've said, of course, from time to time, events will overwhelm that approach. But other than that, I think there's an interesting and very fraught question for the media, and not just for the media, for analysts and public commentators, including humble podcasters like us. And that is, to what extent do we have a responsibility to acknowledge and even at the margins, try to work within that approach? I'm obviously not saying the government should ever tell anyone in the media what to say or think, but it's also worth noting that the media already does make judgments from time to time on what's newsworthy. They make judgments not to, to publish when there are national security issues or individual safety at risk. Now, these are not those situations, and I'm not saying that we should stop researching and discussing China itself or the policy actions Beijing is taking. I'm really focusing on the theatrics of the bilateral relationship, the horse race style, who was winning, who was losing. We all have a discretion here, and I just think uh, we're going to talk, turn to the US midterms in a minute, but there was a very funny effort by the New York Post which covered Donald Trump's election announcement for running for president in 2024 with an article on page 26 of the paper. Um, and there was just a banner headline at the very bottom of their front page, which said, Florida man makes announcement. Now, that was funny and obviously it had a political tone to it. But can you see what I'm grappling with here, Alan? You know, I think for some listeners, this will be an easy question, right? A free and independent media is the bedrock of a liberal democracy. And that's where the conversation stops. But to me, there's just a bit more to it, and I'm, I'm grappling with this issue. What do you think? I don't think the conversation can stop there either. A free and open media is critically important, but in recent years, so much of the debate has been about whether this gives traditional media or social media a free pass on fake news. So as far as I'm concerned, all we can do ourselves and all we can ask for from the media is a careful reading of what's been said and what's been done by the various parties, an accurate reporting of the results, and the avoidance of sort of gratuitous beat-ups like the so-called 14 Chinese demands that we had uh, 18 months ago. All right, well, we haven't finished with Foreign Minister Wong's speech because there's a section on the US that was very interesting. I'm going to quote her here. 
We do ourselves and our American partners no favours if we are not exercising our own agency and standing as a reliable partner of choice in the region. Indeed, that is the principal value we add to the alliance. And I believe it is valued as the United States seeks to re-engage and strengthen its network of allies and partners, recognising the changing nature of its indispensable power. End quote. And it's that last line the changing nature of its indispensable power that jumped out at me because I see the foreign minister linking Australia's need to do more with, can I say, America's declining relative power and a more contested region. And she's framing that in a positive way, right? Like as Australia doing more, contributing more, which both Joe Biden and Donald Trump would agree is needed, but also providing a roadmap to the ultimate objective which across several speeches she's defined as a new equilibrium with no country dominating, no country being dominated and so forth. Did you see something there too, Alan? That's interesting, Darren. There's certainly a subtle shift here. If you look back, one familiar trope in past speeches on the United States from Labor ministers has been the line, which begins as she did, we do ourselves and our American partners no favours, but goes on to say, if we are not speaking clearly to them when we disagree on certain issues. Now, those were the sort of words that were used when the ALP disagreed with Washington, for example, on the Iraq war. This is a much softer formulation. And you're right, indispensable power leaps out partly because it's channeling Madeleine Albright, Bill Clinton's Secretary of State, who described the US as the indispensable nation. So, uh, look, I'm conscious of how cautious Australian ministers are being in talking about the US these days, and I wonder if you're onto something. They're not in the business of being commentators, but as you suggest, maybe it's connected at some level to that new equilibrium and the fact that America needs more help and support from its allies these days. So it weighs differently upon us. And we think that the consequences of criticism are greater. Anyway, well, let's turn to Richard Miles's speech, which was given the following day. And look, we've been talking for a long time, so let me just summarise what were the major points for me jumped out. The first was his specific claim that a deteriorating strategic environment required a change, a recalibration of Australia's defence capabilities. Two, I saw him offer a, a pretty clear justification for AUKUS and nuclear submarines. Quote, providing an unmatched strategic advantage in terms of surveillance and protection of our maritime approaches, this capability will revolutionise the potency of the ADF, end quote. And he foreshadowed that there would be a concrete announcement um, in March of next year. He also discussed other August dimensions and the argument that greater cooperation within AUKUS actually expanded Australia's strategic space rather than limiting its autonomy. And the third major thing that jumped out was a recognition both that the defence budget will need to grow given the changing strategic environment, but with that growth would come greater scrutiny, right? And the previous approach of setting and forgetting was no longer tenable. So I think in summary, like I found it quite interesting, the contrast with Wong's speech on the sources of agency. In foreign policy, it's potentially being more independent at least in the sense of working with and cooperating with a wider range of partners, not just the United States. But in defence policy, agency comes from cooperating with our closest partners and allies. So there's a little bit of a contradiction there, but it does make sense. 
But I think those two things might come into tension in the future. Alan, your comment on the speech. Yeah, well, again, that's an interesting comment, Darren. I thought it it was a reasonably cautious speech, but with some interesting themes in it. It spoke of the need for sober, responsible and clear-eyed statecraft to avoid war, so in, in that it was aligned with Penny Wong's. On China, it continued the careful language of the government and, interestingly, it returned to a line we've heard before from both sides of Australian politics, but not so much recently. That is, we expect China will play a more prominent role consistent with its economic and strategic weight, and that follows then we seek that China's increasing influence is exercised in a manner which reinforces the global rules-based order, though that's not defined, and promotes habits of cooperation that benefit the interests of all countries. On the alliance, again, he says the alliance builds our sovereignty and reinforces our place in the region, provided Australia is an active rather than a passive participant. And this distinction is important. So it goes again to a point you were making before, Darren. He speaks of the need to marshal all and integrate all arms of national power to achieve Australia's strategic aims. He says, gone are the days of simply paying the entry price to obtain our security guarantees from our security guarantor. The world in our region is far too precarious for that. We will have to be willing and capable to act on our own terms when we have to. Now, this is not quite the Hawke government's self-reliance within the alliance, but it is a pitch for autonomy. And finally, he talks about the ADF, as you mentioned, crucially for my portfolio, he says, this will mean ensuring that the military arm of national power is match fit. Now, if I was his speechwriter, I must say I would have chosen another image, but you know what he means. Alan, two last points from me. The first is that Miles says, quote, and so I believe the cornerstone of future Australian strategic thought will be impactful projection. And I want to disagree there because I never want to see the words impactful projection appear together ever again. Um, But on a more serious note, maybe just under the previous government, I got out of the habit of really closely reading speeches from ministers. I think just there's a lot in these speeches. And I wonder if they're being as read as closely within government because they're long and there's a lot being made, but I think we are learning a lot and they're not just for the world and for the Australian public, but for the government, for the people working inside government. So that is, yeah, that is interesting. All right, Alan, well, we've been here for a while. Let's quickly just, I can't, I can't let the moment pass by without talking quickly about the US election. These were, as I'm sure everyone knows by now, quite surprising results given the political headwinds the Democrats were facing. What's really important to know is that almost every hardcore, high-profile Trump supporter lost, especially in the important governorships and secretaries of state races who are going to oversee the 2024 election. In all of the major battleground states now, we do not have any election deniers who are claiming the 2020 election was stolen who will have responsibility for overseeing 2024. And this is really good news. And I think we should take a moment to celebrate it. And it follows from the failure of Brazil's President Bolsonaro to win re-election also last month. I went back at almost, you know, 100 episodes ago in, in episode eight, after Bolsonaro was first elected, I made the point that elections are designed to remove incumbents who do a bad job. 
and the election of individuals like Trump or Bolsonaro, who are populists with authoritarian instincts, that over the longest loop of history, that's not a totally abnormal outcome in a democracy. Because it shows from time to time there is large-scale discontentment and indeed anguish with many citizens about the status quo. So that people like this can win is a feature, not a bug of democracy. But most importantly, it's the second election that matters. Public policy is hard and populists tend to dismiss the value of specialist expertise, which means they often make bad policy. And the question is whether political institutions can withstand that authoritarian pressure, shall we call it, and facilitate that electoral punishment. And this time around, they have. And I think, you know, we've seen a meaningful majority of the US electorate in particular show that it's not interested in Trump's election denialism and all the craziness that accompanies his core populist message. This doesn't solve the problem of America's declining relative power, doesn't solve the problem of of how they should engage with our region, but I still... I'm a bit optimistic. And before I give you a chance to pour some cold water, if you want to, Alan, on that my optimism, again, it's worth drawing a contrast with China's political system, where there are no strong, inbuilt institutional mechanisms for correction. Wild swings and indeed chaos may be a built-in feature of democratic governance in the 21st century in particular. And I can see why, you know, the Chinese Communist Party looks at that and says, no, thank you. But I'm yet to see anything close to a compelling argument for how China's political system can durably correct mistakes. And the continued COVID zero policy amid shockingly low vaccination rates is a good example from recent times. So Alan, are you going to pour some cold water or were you optimistic of these midterm results like I was? No cold water from me, uh, Darren, just a deep sigh of relief. The results were an unambiguously good sign that perhaps the worst of America's Trump fever is passing. Now, of course, long road to go. But if you add in the outcomes of the G20 meeting, this all feels like a saner world, doesn't it, than when we recorded just a week ago. Indeed, indeed. All right. Well, as always, for our final segment, reading, listening and watching, what do you have for us? Anne-Marie Slaughter is one of the political scientists who's influenced me most over the years, particularly through her work on transgovernmentalism, which is the way experts in different areas from judges to health professionals have linked up to form a new and distinct layer of state-to-state relationships. She's now the CEO of the New America Think Tank in Washington, and under Barack Obama, of course, she was the first woman to head the Policy Planning Bureau in the State Department. She has an interview on the, or she is interviewed on the Seneca podcast this week in a broad conversation that has real relevance in the light of our earlier discussions about Biden and Xi in Bali and the US national security strategy. She's particularly interesting on the balance between global issues like climate change and geopolitics in American policy, and also on the dangers of groupthink in Washington. Anyway, we'll link to it on our show notes. Thanks, Alan. I've got three recommendations. Uh, The first is also a podcast. It's called How Other Dads Dad, and it's done by Hamish Blake, who Australians will know as a comedian and popular TV personality. There's a lot of content out there that is mums talking with other mums about mumming, but not very much at all on dads talking with other dads about dadding. Uh, And as a dad myself, I was really pleased. I really enjoyed the first episode. It's not 
perfect, but we need more of it. And this is a great start. The second music recommendation, there's an English pop rock band called The 1975, and they've got an album just out called Being Funny in a foreign language. And it's very fun and easy to listen to. And it was the number one album in Australia, actually, in late October. But it was displaced at the end of last month. And this is my third recommendation by a a 30-something solo artist named Taylor Swift. You might have heard of her. In fact, I have, as you might remember, Alan, expressed my Swifty fandom in the past. I do, I do. But I think it's time it's time to take it up a, a level and, and, and put myself out there and say that I think Taylor Swift is the Paul McCartney or even the Leonard Cohen <gasps> of her time, which is oh. this time. Uh, you know, I, the first single of her new album, um, and the single is called Antihero, uh, and the new album is called Midnights, contains the epic line, I'll stare directly at the sun but never in the mirror. And this follows the catchy chorus line, it's me, hi. I'm the problem, it's me. And I think it's worth reflecting on that line for all of us who are involved in the grand enterprise of international affairs, whether doing it or talking about it. But either way, it is an instant classic of a song. That is all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank Walter Kolnagy for research and audio editing today and bid farewell with thanks to Artika Meki, whose time with us has come to an end. Thanks also to Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We'll talk to you again soon.